We're in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. As you turn to Isaiah chapter 40, we begin a new series of the attributes of God after spending over a year and a half going through uh, the gospel uh, according to Luke. Some of you may have seen it uh, right here in front of the pulpit, and if not, there is a small cardboard box right there in front of that. Can you see that where you're at? So I put there that, that box this week because as I read Isaiah 40, I thought about a box that I was looking at in the room, and what I was reflecting on when I was reading Isaiah 40 is that every single one of us, without thinking, puts God in a box. We have boundaries for God, which you may not think that you do, but in reality, every single one of us have in our mind of what we think or who we think God is and how great he is or how small he is. And so your box can be whatever size you want, big, small, whatever shape, whatever color. And the challenge this morning is for us to understand that God is not in a box. You cannot contain God in any manner, in any way whatsoever. And the danger is, the result is, the size or the shape or the color of the box that you have for God will be um, something that is seen in your life. Therefore, if God has no standards, then you will have no standards. If God, as you view him, is cruel and without sympathy, you will act just like him towards others. If we see that God is loving, you may be loving towards others. If you have no God, you are godless. The reason why we place God in a box, though, is because we are humans. And humans are finite, and God is not. And so today, as we begin the attributes of God, I'll tell you, I, I wrestled over the past few weeks of which attribute of God we begin with as I looked at these different attributes. And I had three different sermons for this week. And on Monday at 2 o'clock, I prayed and I said, Holy Spirit, I do not know where you want to me to begin And as I turned to Isaiah 40, which I hadn't even spent time preparing in, um, I was directed to God and his infinitude. And so we look this morning to this. God is infinite. And it's important as we look to these things that we would find the true knowledge of God. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The most important thing in your life, the most important thing in your life, have I got your attention? Are you looking at me? The most important thing in your life is having a correct knowledge of God. It's the only important thing in life. You must have a correct knowledge Truth, knowledge of God. In the Old Testament, a guy named Hosea, a prophet, wrote in chapter 4 that God's people rejected the knowledge of God. And he goes on to say, because they rejected the knowledge of God, they lacked the knowledge of God, and therefore they were being destroyed. If your lack of God, your knowledge of God is incorrect and flawed, you'll reap the results of it in your life and you will be destroyed just as Hosea gives that warning to the people of God who rejected the knowledge and the truth of God. Therefore, it is of great importance that you and I this morning turn our attention to the word of God 
the truth of God. And we pray and ask that the Holy Spirit of God would give us understanding. The big idea from Isaiah chapter 40 verses 9 through 31 is this. The truth of God's greatness humbles the heart and gives much comfort to the fearful, troubled, and anxious. Look at Isaiah chapter 40 beginning in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsman overlays it with gold, and he casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of God.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is no way that I can stand before these people and try to explain your infinitude. And so we ask, Father, that you would work upon our hearts by the power of your Spirit to give us understanding from your words, from Scripture, which we have read. We ask that you would bless the reading of the Scripture, that it would open our ears, our eyes, our minds, our hearts to your greatness, your glory, and your majesty. Holy Spirit, would you give us understanding this morning, stir our hearts, change our hearts, make those who are lost to be found, and would you make the hearts of those who are found in you to grow in their understanding of you. Jesus Christ, thank you for what you have done to save us from our sins, to make us new, that we would have the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of the truth of who you are. We ask that you bless the preaching of the word in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at verses nine through 11, Isaiah says, behold your God. He says, pay attention, people. Look, here is your God. And he goes on to describe a God who is a mighty king, but he's also a shepherd who cares for his people as a shepherd would care for his lambs And this morning, as we begin to look at the attributes of God and we look here at God's infinitude, the scripture reveals how magnificent God is. And I pray that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, that you would be humbled by the words of Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Over the weeks to come, and we'll see this this morning, there are incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. Incommunicable attributes are like what we look at today, God's infinitude. That attribute belongs to God alone. He does not share his infinitude with any of us. But then we will see God's communicable attributes, things like God's goodness, in which he shares with his people to a certain extent. But still, when we look at all the attributes of God, know that God's infinitude comes first because he's infinite in all of his attributes. He's infinite in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his power, in his love. And it is a wonderful thing for us to draw our attention to who God is and to study what the Word of God teaches. Therefore, when we look at God being infinite, what does this mean? It means that God has no bounds, no boundaries whatsoever. He's unlimited. He is measureless. He is very great and magnificent. God is infinite and we are not. We are finite. And so I stand before you this morning begging and pleading with God for him to speak to you because I can't explain in any words to you God's infinitude. As I reflected on Isaiah 40 this week, at times my mind felt like my brain was just hurting to think about God's infinitude and how amazing and great and vast he is. Like I can go to the waters and I can catch a fish and I can take my tape measure and measure. I'm like, awesome. 20 inch brown trout. That's awesome. But I can't measure God. 
I can read the scriptures and I still can't measure him. I could have someone stand in this room and tell you how many square feet in this building and we can measure those things. We can look to the sky and we know where the sky ends and space begins. You can read all about the Mariana Trench in the ocean and the deepest part of it is 6.8 miles to the bottom. We have measurements, but you cannot in any way measure God. You cannot calculate him, quantify him. You can't uh, feel how deep, how wide. You can't measure God. You can read the Bible from the beginning to the end, and we can read about his greatness, but our human minds will not understand his infinitude. So the reason I put the box there is whatever size box you think, when you blow the walls off that, Because God is not contained at all. And when you begin to think of these things, when you read scripture again, it's just mind boggling. And I and I want to encourage you to pray as we study the attributes of God that we would not be falling into the temptation to try to make God like us. Because mankind is mankind is made in God's image. God is not in our image. And therefore, yet at times, our human mind tries to put things that we maybe even don't mean to and put boundaries and ways and things of what we think about God. And you can't. And it's wrong. And it's actually sinful to try to make God like us. Psalm 145. Psalm 145 verses 1 through 3 says this. David says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And many of the scriptures, when you read in the book of Psalms and in a moment we'll read in the book of Romans, um, you can't search God out to the extent of his greatness and his glory and his majesty. In the book of Job, if you haven't read the book of Job, there's a man uh, who uh, he fears God and his children are, are, are wiped out. He loses everything he owns. He's afflicted with sores from head to toe. And that was all the work of Satan who got permission from God to do that, to try to get Job to turn from worshiping God. And Job has some friends who show up and Job's sitting in these mashes and, and, he, and, he, and he's all down and all this. And yet he's still worshiping God. And his friends are like, Job, you did something something in you and they tart they start to describe God to Job and when you read it it's actually quite comical at parts and one of his friends in Job chapter 11 verse 7 he says this to Job can you find out the deep things of God can you find out the limit uh, of the almighty and you're like oh that's a great thing that he says there And then at the end of Job, God corrects this guy and his friends and says, you guys have given a wrong description of me and you better ask for forgiveness and you better ask Job to pray for you because you're all wrong. And I've been praying this week that God will reveal to us the false things that we believe about God. That the things that we've learned from our world, our experience, our teachers, our family, our friends, even wrongly taught from Scripture, 
that God would move those things, remove them out of our mind, and reveal to us the truth that the Holy Spirit can help us understand. And so he says in verse 9, Behold your God. Look at verses 12 through 17. The question is, who has measured God? Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountain scales and the hills in a balance? Here we see God's infinite power. But we'll study another week. His omnipotence, yet God has no uh, reins or, or boundaries to his power. And the question is, who can measure the greatness of God? And when you read this, it says, who has marked off the heavens with a span? Well, that's talking about the space between your thumb and your small finger. To think that the whole universe, God measures it out with his hand. Now, we'll also study this in our study, that God is spirit. And so there are words in Scripture to help us understand. Does God have this literal hand that he measures? We'll get into those things there. But to think that God knows how, he knows the weight of the mountains of this world. It says, who's put them in a scale to tell you what it is? Or even the amount of dust. You ever, you, you like dust? Some of you have dust allergies and you just despise dust. God could tell us right now how much dust, the weight of dust there is in this world. I mean, just think about that this week. Unbelievable. And then Isaiah goes on at one point to talk about the fine dust. It's like the dust of the dust that God knows all this. I mean, it is mind boggling when you think of this. It says, who's measured out the water? Water's in the hollow of his hand. Think about all the water in this world. And it's like God can measure it in his hand. God is infinite in power. Nothing can stop the hand of God. God does what he desires to do. And what he desires to do is to bring glory to himself. And he will therefore do everything that brings glory to him. And no one can stop him. And yet in our pridefulness and sinfulness, we think we can tell God what to do, when to do, where to do, just because we pray. God is all-powerful, and we see that in creation. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, it says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now think about all the stuff that's hard for you to do. Whatever comes to your mind. And you may think, what is something really hard for God to do? Get that out of your mind, because there is nothing that is too hard for God to do that he chooses to do. It says in Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Those are the words of Job when after God's like, Job, let me show you and tell you who I am. And Job's like, Lord, I'm wrong. I was completely wrong. Forgive me. He's like, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours is thwarted. Go back to our text here in Isaiah 40. Look at verses 13 and 14. We see God's infinite wisdom. Do you realize that God knows everything? Like, let me ask this. How many of you believe that God knows everything and anything? 
Okay, I just, I have to ask that because so many times we live our life like God doesn't know what's happening right now. Well, what does it say in verse 13? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? It's impossible to measure the spirit of God. And here's the thing. Many times we present ourselves to God as the greatest consultants in the world. God, I'm an expert in this area. You need to do this and answer it this way. God, if you just did that for that person, they'd come to faith in you. Lord, if you did these things, and yet that's the problem, is the pridefulness of our hearts. Like, I'm an expert, God. I'm going to tell you what to do. Oh, but I'll do it through prayer. He's like, who has consulted God? God, you need to destroy those wicked people. That would be better if you do that right now. God, why would you allow this? Don't you know this is better? And we may say, oh, no, I I don't do that. But we do in our hearts and in our prayers try to control God and consult him and say, God, you need to know this. One of my pet peeves is when I gather with uh, other believers and we pray, I really struggle with information prayers. And what do I mean by information prayers? It's we're gathering and we're praying and someone wants to pray to inform the group of what that person is going to pray about or we inform God. God, you know that Tom fell and broke his leg or God, let me tell you that Tom fell and broke his leg. God, would you, you know, and we go in detail. It's like God knew he was going to break his leg before he was born. So instead of going into the information to God, just say, God, would you heal Tom's leg? But do you see how we do those things? We try to inform God. We try to consult him. And what does it say? Whom did he consult? Verse 14. And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and knowledge, taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? If you look at all these questions, Isaiah 40, Isaiah never answers them because the answers are known. We know them. He's like he asks the questions and he doesn't give the answers because, you know, no one has informed God, consulted God, give him some wisdom, knowledge or, 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 or justice or told him, God, you need to act this way. This is God, his omniscience, his all-knowing. God knows everything, everything that will happen, everything that has happened, everything that could possibly happen. God knows each and every one of those things. And when you think of that, it should be comforting to your heart that not one thing that happens in your life is outside of God's knowledge. And if he's all-powerful, And nothing can stop him. He is the one who's in control. And that should be great comfort to you. It says in Psalm 147 verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Any of you ever been surprised by something happening you didn't plan for? Anyone? Yeah. Good things, surprise party, I don't know. But what about the bad things you've had that's been a complete surprise? You find out that this person has died. You find out that this person has this sickness. You find out that you lost this, whatever. Or that, and it's a crisis at that moment. God is never surprised. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth 
of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God knows all. If you look back in verses 15 through 17 of Isaiah 40, it says the nations are like a drop from the bucket, accounted as a dust on the scales. All the nations before him are nothing. We see God's infinite greatness, or as some theologians would say, his immensity, that the nations are nothing before God. And so you think of the greatness of Rome, or someone may say, well, look at China and how many soldiers that they have. Look at the glory of the United States of America. And every one of those countries, present and past, can be gone in the blink of an eye by God. They are nothing. They're a drop in the bucket. God just flips the bucket over and the drop goes to the ground. Therefore, do not, do not put your hope in your country, in your leadership, in your state, in your city. Put your hope in God. If you look at verses 18 through 20, the third point is a question again. Who will you compare God to? And when I read this part, I always chuckle a little. It feels like Isaiah's being sarcastic or God's giving him the words. So it's like almost like God's being sarcastic. Um, I don't know if God gets sarcastic, but it sure feels like that. It says, verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. And he, to, he who is impoverished gets some wood that, and has a skillful craftsman. And as I thought about that, idols are talked about a lot in the Bible. And the nation of Israel constantly battled with building uh, idols that they would worship. And so it'd be like you and I today going downtown to the local idol guy in Missoula here and knocking on the door, going in the store and saying, hey, I've got a great idea. You know, how much would it cost me if I if you would build this idol for me, shape this way? Let's make it a trout, whatever, since we've got rivers around here. And would you make it out of gold? And you know what? Some silver chains would be wonderful for it. But you know what? You need to make sure that the platform stands well, because I'm going to go set it on my shelf and it would be a horrible embarrassment if it fell over and my friends are there. And those who can't afford the gold and silver, they go over to the woodworker. Hey, would you carve this for me and make this idol for me? An idol is limited by what it's made out of. And it sits on a shelf where a person places it. Earlier this year, um, our family... We had some family in town, and we were at a place. And, and, and I asked my son, Jonathan, he actually told me right before the service, he says, you could tell him that. So... A few years ago in Los Angeles, we go to the uh, car shop and there is a statue of Buddha sitting there. And Jonathan's like, what is that? There was some food there and some coins and he wanted to take the coins, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> He's like, what is that thing? I was like, well, people worship that. And he had, he's like, what? He's like, yeah, like we worship Jesus. You know, he's like, oh, weird. So then our family is traveling around Missoula here, showing some other family a place. And we come upon a place and there's a, a business there and there's a, a little pond there and there's another Buddha there. 
And my son is wanting to take Buddha and chuck him into the pond. And I said, buddy, you can't do that. They're right, you know, the, you know and, and all the, the, friend, the sisters and cousins, they're all picking up Buddha. And it makes me laugh because that's really what you see here in the sarcasm. But at the same time, it's a great tragedy. The number of people around this world who literally have stone, wood, and metal idols, and they believe that they're God, and they offer food to it. Scripture talks about idols that can't see or hear or speak. And you might say, I don't have any of those in my home. You know, maybe I had a, a, a this or that, I got rid of it years ago. But the reality is, is we do have idols. You all have battled with or you have now idols that you've built up in your life some way. And I pray that the Lord has set you free of those and those have been torn down. But some of them, your idol is your family. Your idol is your job. Your idol is the bank account or your vacations or the things that you own. Anything that would take more attention uh, away from God and you'd put it into that has become an idol. And here the sarcasm is what can the idol do for you? And the answer is nothing. Look at verses 21 through 24. The fourth point again, another question. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Again, he's like, people, you know this. He doesn't answer the question. He says God rules over all. We see God's infinite sovereignty that he rules over everything that happens in everyone who lives. And look at verse 22. He who sits and is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. You may not like him, but I like grasshoppers. I love seeing grasshoppers because trout like grasshoppers and they go crazy over grasshoppers because grasshoppers are small. and They fill the belly of a trout. Maybe some of you like to eat grasshoppers. I don't know. When I read this, though, I'm amazed. Because I can think of even recently this summer, walking through fields and grasshoppers are just flying out of the way. Because to them, I'm just huge and great to them. And I can step on them and crush them or whatever, or use them for bait. And it says God's seated above the circle of the earth. And we are like grasshoppers to him. I mean, it blows your mind. And yet in our sinfulness, we do hinder in a sense of who we think God is. But he is great. He is so great and so mighty and so vast that we are like grasshoppers before him. Isaiah chapter 46, if you turn to the right of where we're at, Isaiah chapter 46, it says this in verses 8 through 10. It says, remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Verse 24 says that God blows on the people and they wither. 
Isaiah describes in chapter 40 that we are like grass that withers by the breath of the Lord, pointing to the fact that your time and life on earth is so short. I mean, you think of vastness and eternity, and I heard someone talking about some of this week, and I don't remember who was talking about it, said, hey, take a sheet of paper, draw a one-inch line, and that's uh, when you started drawing, that's when time began, and that's when you picked it up, that's when time ends, and God is outside of all that, and if you took in the middle of that, there's some little tiny little scratch mark, that's your life. Your life is so short, and therefore, the call is to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would be saved by the work of Christ, who's not dead and who's alive, and that every single day for the rest of the day, all the life that you have in you, that you would glorify God, that you would walk in holiness, that you would declare the truth to other people and not waste your life on chasing after idols and not waste your life on the pleasures of the world, but that you would turn to Jesus, you would see God's greatness, and you would praise Him and give him glory look at verses 25 to 26 the fifth point some of you say hey he he messed up on his points no the question again who will you compare God to God the infinite creator infinite in might and power look at verses 25 and 26 it says then to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God's saying, who are you going to compare me to? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Some of you love to go out at night and look at the stars and you get your telescope out and your star chart and you know the names of all these stars and all these planets and things. You must be reminded that God said... Let there be light. God placed the, the, the stars in the heavens. He set them there. He knows every single one. So when you see these amazing pictures of our universe, God just set it and it happens and it points to his greatness. And he says, whom will you compare me to? Turn to Romans chapter one. Romans in the New Testament chapter one. Part of the problem that Isaiah is addressing there is that the people were worshiping idols and they were worshiping creation and the stars then. Well, here a few thousand years later, the same thing goes on here in Missoula, Montana. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And you read on that God gave them over to their depravity. We see God's creation. He reveals his greatness through his creation. And the problem that mankind has is we begin to worship creation and we do not worship God. And I believe here there is a temptation for us to worship God because we see the amazing Mountains and the rivers, and we see the snow falling, and we see the weather, and all the things that God has created. I know for our family, coming from East Los Angeles and moving here, we're like 
astounded by God's glory. But there's the temptation that I then want to say something with all oh, this is amazing, it's beautiful. It's like, wait, God, you created every bit of it. And this is a fallen world. And one day you're going to make a new heavens and new earth, which is even greater than this. So all the glory should go to God. So don't be distracted because we have a host of people in our city who do not worship God. They worship creation. They chase after things in this world. And this creation becomes an idol and they worship the idol and they don't worship God. And it's a fearful thing because God gives people over to their sinfulness and the wrath of God is upon them as we read Romans in Romans it goes on in Romans chapter 3 it says that every single one of us are wicked sinners that everyone has sinfulness in them that they are born with that sin nature but you go on to Romans chapter 10 and it teaches us that no one in this world is saved just because they see God in a mountainscape the rivers or whatever no one is saved by just seeing this creation they're saved according to Romans 10 by responding to the gospel if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he has been risen from the dead, you will be saved. So our prayer should be that people would see God in creation and they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would confess that Jesus is Lord and be saved. Look at the last few verses in verses 27 to 31. The last two questions again, it's a repeat. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And I say amen when I read this. A God who never gets tired. He never sleeps. He never has got to sit down and get a glass of lemonade because it's too hot that day. When I read this, the truth is you and I need an infinite God. We need an everlasting, all-powerful, doesn't get tired, doesn't fall down God who knows everything. At the same time, we need a personal God. Because I think sometimes we get distracted on God's greatness and not realize that he is a personal God that comes close to his people. And so we need a personal God. Jeremiah 23, verse 23 and 24. It says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Again, not only is God seated above the heavens, but he's seated in the hearts of his people. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in the hearts of his people whom he's adopted to be his own children. And therefore, God is not far off. Read Acts chapter 17 this week as the Apostle Paul addresses that and said, God's not far off, but he's close. And so we need a personal God. And as I read these last couple of verses, look with me at verses 29 through 31. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. 
Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus today at this moment, and you are tired and you're faint and you're weary and you're falling down, we are instructed to wait for the Lord in faith. That he is the one that can strengthen you. He is the one that will not uh, 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 let you fail under the types of trouble and and the things in this world. You read the book of James. That God will use the trials and he will bring you through if you're a follower of his. And so if you're in trouble today. And you, you need an infinite God. You need to wait for him. Call out to him. He already knows your tiredness. He already knows your trouble. And you call out for him to give you strength. And so we're blessed with a glorious, infinite shepherd king who blesses his people. That we could call out in times of strength. And it made me think of this hymn. This is pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. So we end with where we began. The truth of God's greatness humbles the heart and gives much comfort to the fearful, troubled, and anxious. If you place God in a box, I pray that he's destroyed that box today and that the walls of that box have just crumbled apart for you. For all the control freaks in this room, um, I pray, I say that funny, sarcastically, I pray that you understand that God's in control and everything that you think you know, everything that you have to have for control in your life, um, you're not in control. The good thing is that God is. And God's infinitude humbles control people. God's infinitude shows all of us that we are sinful and we are in need of his forgiveness. The comfort comfort that he offers, he offers to you in the midst of your pain, your sorrow, when those crises that surprise you happen. You may never, ever, ever get an answer to your question to why God did this happen in my life. But you can rest in the fact that none of your why questions and troubles in your life are bigger than God Almighty. As the worship team comes forward, we're going to, as a family of God, the body of Christ, take a piece of bread and a cup together. And as we do that, it means so much. And it means so much if you are a Christian. It means so much if you are a follower of Christ. It means much if you are part of the body of Christ. If you are not saved, if you are not a Christian, 
it means nothing to you, and I would encourage you to stay where you're seated and pray that God would open your eyes to believe in Him as Lord. But for everyone else who are followers of God, to think about this, when you think about God's infinitude, Jesus Christ, who is God, who's infinite and glorious, with no limits, came down and became man. Fully God, fully man. Never ceasing to be infinite, but took upon man's finitude. And it's only an infinite, holy God with a finite human's nature without sin who could pay the debt that you owe to God, which is your life. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, went to the cross, was made sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. And God the Father poured out His wrath meant for you upon His Son whom He loves. And Jesus bled and He died. And he did that so he could save his people from their sins. And Jesus Christ was placed in a tomb. And on the third day rose again. And he's ascended to heaven. And he's ruling and reigning. He says, I'm coming back. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come now. And in this moment, which is a holy moment, a moment of unity for the body of Christ, it's a moment to reflect that we are sinners who need a Savior. And it's a moment to rejoice that through faith in Christ alone we are saved and we have the promise to be with Him for eternity. Romans 5, 18-21 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <laughs> That's an infinite God with infinite love and infinite grace. It says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord.